Not too long ago, the United Kingdom took the momentous decision to leave the European Union, a move that became universally known as Brexit. How has that worked out? What have been the consequences for the UK and for Europe? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss Brexit and its consequences with Antonio Gaucha Suarez, who is professor at ISG, the School of, Ma- of Economics and Management at the University of Lisbon, and Jean Monnet, Chair of European Law. He earned his Ph.D. in law at the European University Institute in Florence after graduating from the Lisbon Law School and the College of Europe in Bruges, Belgium. He's also been a visiting professor at Brown University. He's the author of several books and scholarly articles on European law, and his most recent book is Brexit a Saída do Reino da União Europeia. Um, my Portuguese is shaky, so that was the best I could do. He's also run the New York Marathon and written a book about the experience. And I had lunch with him the day afterwards, and he didn't seem any the worse for wear. So I've always been very impressed. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today, Antonio Gaucha Suarez. Thank you, John, for having me. It's a pleasure. Great to have you. So let's launch right in. I mean, perhaps we could begin by reminding our listeners how the British decision to leave the European came about. Could you recount some of that history for us? Yes. Okay. So we must go back to 2010 when the conservative power uh, returned to power, when the conservative party returned to power. As you probably remember, there was a big uh, kind of civil war going on in the conservative power on the European issue. Uh, they had this legacy of Mrs. Thatcher that was kind of Eurosceptical. And then uh, when uh, Mrs. Thatcher was removed from power in the early 90s, uh, she was succeeded by Mr. Major, which was a little bit more pro-European. Then with the the Labour power, the United Kingdom, uh, for some uh, 12 years, they were aligned very much to uh, European integration. Up to the moment that um, the conservative power won the 2010 elections. And by that time, the European Union was in the process of relaunching itself because there was a new treaty, the famous Treaty of Lisbon, and there were very ambitious uh, targets for the European Union to achieve. So in the, inside the party, there was this uh, group of people, the so-called backbenchers uh, in the parliament, that they wanted the, uh, the UK to have a special relation uh, with uh, the EU, and they wanted also to raise the issue whether or not they should be able to decide uh, to exit from the European Union. Because one of the 
innovations of the Treaty of Lisbon was that uh, there was a clause that did allow the member states to get out of the European Union. So they were pressing David Cameron uh, to open a discussion on whether or not the UK should pull out of the European Union. So on its side, David Cameron he, he was a little bit trying to reconcile those that were in favor with the European Union and those that were against the European Union. And moreover, there was a new party that came out by the time that was the UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party, that was having um, quite of good results in the European elections. And it was uh, a way for uh, conquering the electorate from the Conservative Party. So it was quite uh, tricky for David Cameron to manage all the challenges that he had to face. So in 2013, he promised that if in the next uh, national elections he would be able to get an absolute majority, he would uh, call for a referendum on the Brexit, on the British relation with the European Union. So whether or not the United Kingdom should uh, remain in the European Union or to exit from the European Union. Hence Brexit, it was um, the option of getting out, exiting from the European Union. Right. So once this pretty significant decision was taken, there had to be extended, I mean, nobody had ever done this before, which was part of the, you know, what was earth shattering about the UK decision. Um, so they had to enter into these extended negotiations to try to figure out what the new relationship would be between the UK and the European Union. So maybe you could tell us about how all that went and what the results were. Well, uh, so we should go back to 2016 when the referendum took place. Uh, and this uh, 2016 was, uh, as you can remember, well, the very end of the so-called Euro crisis. Uh, the Euro crisis was a big crisis that uh, signed... Uh, that decade of the European Union with Greece almost being uh, expelled from the euro area. And this, this, this marked very much the political process inside the European Union. So everybody was very much impressed about the way that uh, small countries were treated by the European Union institutions and by the European Union big member states, just Germany. So in the public opinion in the EU, Okay, they were um, quite um, impressed by the events of the Euro crisis. So when they voted in 2016, it was a vote also on how um, the economic governance of the economic and monetary of the Euro area uh, was being uh, um, managed. So in the referendum we had the uh, in the better, in the referendum outcome we had a very much divided country in the sense that 16 million people they vote to remain and 17 million people vote to exit from the European Union. It, it was a very much divided country, and this referendum was not binding by law. 
So it was a political decision called for a referendum, but the referendum was not binding for the political power, mainly for the parliament, because in the UK we live with this idea that belongs to the political system of the parliamentary sovereignty. So in theoretical terms, the decision taken in the referendum could be overcome by a vote in the British Parliament. So in the very first moment the question was how should the UK organize its uh, political process in order to implement the decision taken by uh, the referendum. On the other side there was the European Union that felt the um, referendum as a big threat to the European Union political process of economic integration and political integration and the European Union was mainly uh, fearing that this could um, boost some kind of contagion to other member states. So the European Union uh, in the uh, in the period after the referendum they um, went on with a strategy that the member states, the 27 remaining member states, they had to get uh, unite in order to negotiate with a stronger bargain power uh, against the United Kingdom in the process. On its side, the UK was clearly divided, and there was this division also uh, between the political class of the elite and the people, those that vote to exiting, and in the framework of the British Parliament, there was a majority of uh, members of Parliament that they were against getting out of uh, the European Union. So it took about one year to decide what would be uh, the process to follow and finally in 2017 the UK decided uh, to move on with the decision taken by the popular vote and to notify the Union uh, in order to uh, initiate the exiting procedure. So in 2017 they initiate this exiting procedure and there was this discussion whether or not there should be um, a regulated exiting from the European Union or there should be heartbreak from the European Union. And for the, what were the, the problems with that? The problems was that the European Union wanted the UK to pay a very strong price in order to be able to have uh, a soft Brexit, that is to say, uh, a Brexit ruled by an agreement. So the European Union was asking uh, the UK to pay a price, and this was a financial price, and a very, a very heavy financial price, because the UK should took into consideration its financial commitments towards the European Union uh, in the medium term, and the financial commitment also that the uh, UK assumed by taking part in a number of European Union agencies, not just um, the European Union institutions, but the agencies like this famous European Medical Agency that was headquartered in London, so it was for the United Kingdom to pay for the relocation of those agencies. So, in the beginning, the European Union wanted the UK to pay something like 100 billion euros, but then uh, at the end of the negotiations, this was kind of uh, half uh, some amount of money that the UK had to pay.
So in 2017, 2018, uh, the UK went on in this withdrawing negotiations with the European Union. And finally, by the end uh, of 2018, they reached the famous withdrawal agreement. The UK and the EU, they signed this withdrawal agreement um, to allow the UK to have a soft Brexit, that is to say, a regulated uh, withdrawal from the European Union. And this regulated withdrawal was made in order to allow this financial agreement between the UK and the EU, this financial settlement, and mostly to uh, ensure the so-called citizens' rights. Uh, the UK used to host a very large number of EU workers, so to make sure that the rights of those persons that used to benefit from the free movement of uh, citizens were safeguarded for the future. And in the other uh, sense, there was a lot of retired uh, British citizens that used to live in South Spain, in South in Greece or in South Portugal. And this treaty was also about to safeguard the, the right of those peoples to keep living outside uh, the UK once the UK would leave the European Union. So this was mainly a withdrawal agreement. Right. So, I mean, you make the point that there was a considerable concern on the side of the European Union about the possibility that this would set off a kind of contagion. How, you know, how serious a concern is that at this point? Uh, this was the, the initial fear because um, in the European Union, the, the European Union was based very much in these dynamics of integration. And so, once you have uh, member states withdrawing from it, the European Union's first initial reaction was that, because this was decided on the basis of this populist wave, was that these uh, populist movements that were uh, in the national politics of every member state, they could also embrace in this uh, trend uh, to withdrawing from the European Union. So this could be the beginning of some kind of dismantlement of the European Union. Fortunately, uh, well, the, the, the Brexit was a single member state issue. We do not see, even in those more populist movements that an important position in some member states, like in Italy. In Italy, as you know, we have these very strong populist movements like Salvini movement, the famous Northern League. Well, Salvini, in the meantime, uh, it turned to be a little bit more Europeanized. So, in the countries which are more problematic, like Italy, which is uh, a traditional problem, uh, for the European Union since the beginning of the Euro. Well, even the, the, the populist right wing, they do not ask for the country to exit from the European Union. And the same applies to the far right in France. Uh, Madame Le Pen, well, she, she understood in the last presidential elections that took place after the Brexit referendum that it was not um, a good uh, topic uh, to present to the French voters 
to promise them to call for a referendum to discuss uh, the relationship between France and the European Union. So fortunately, I do not think that there was any kind of contagion of the of the Brexit uh, to other European member states. So now that the whole negotiation process is resolved, I mean, what's the relationship between these two entities? Um, well, I mean, as you say, it was kind of a soft Brexit for. Because it would have been very hard, I think, in many ways, for to make it a hard one because of the, you know, uh, interconnections uh, between these two entities. As you say, you know, EMA was located in London. I mean, you can move a, a, a bureaucracy, I suppose, from one city to another, but you know, it's just an indication of how interconnected these entities had become. So, so tell us more about, you know, what's the nature of the relationship on the ground, so to speak, now. Well, this is also very interesting because uh, we had this withdrawal agreement that was uh, negotiated and concluded by 2018, and this was to prepare, uh, well, the formal and legal conditions for the UK to exit. Uh, but then there was some problems because this agreement was not uh, passed, was not approved by the British Parliament, and this was due mainly by domestic reasons. So this was a political process that led to the replacement of Mrs. May, which was the Prime Minister that negotiated this withdrawal agreement, uh, by Mr. Um, Boris Johnson, which is the current Prime Minister. It was with Boris Johnson that the Parliament gets to approve, after a further national legislative election in the UK, this withdrawal agreement. And with that, the UK was able to finally uh, leave the European Union. After that, and because the European Union is a very complex and attached to a very uh, um, complicated rules-making process, the European Union wanted to discuss the future relationship with the EU. So it took about the year 2020 to start discussing, uh, discussing this um, future relationship between the UK and the European Union. Well, as you remember, last year in 2020, we were, uh, we faced this pandemic since the beginning of the year. So anybody was not any more interested in the uh, discussing the, the, the post-Brexit relationship. However, uh, there was this commitment to find out uh, an agreement in order to settle all uh, the practical and legal aspects of the post-Brexit relationship. So in 2020, uh, the UK and the EU, they reached an agreement by the Christmas Eve, which uh, created the so-called Trade and Cooperation Agreement. And it is the trade and cooperation agreement that frames all the relationship between the European Union and the UK after the UK exits from the European Union. Well, this trade and cooperation agreement, it's a very... For the European Union, is at the same time the most uh, comprehensive agreement that the European Union has signed so far with any 
first state, but at the same point, it was an agreement that was negotiated with a former partner uh, with an aim to keep a good level of uh, trade and economic relationships, so uh, to, to ensure that there was no trade barriers, no tariffs, and no quotas, but at the same time to show to the UK that things did, uh, did change significant, uh, on a very significant way. So they do, they do, they, it's a paradox. So they want that there will be no tariffs, uh, and no, uh, no quantitative restrictions on trade. But on the other way, uh, it allows for the creation of a number of red tape and administrative controls, checks and on the borders and so on that makes all uh, the, the trade flux to, to become more expensive and to take more time. So this was this trade and cooperation agreement that was finally um, that was finally reached by the end of 2020 uh, and that created this new framework. One of the issues that was also at the well, there was there were several issues at the center of this debate. One of the issues was the famous level playing field, which is one of these uh, words by which the European Union wants to export its rules abroad whenever they negotiate with third countries. And this was a very complex issue because this was basically about um, labor law and uh, environmental rules. And the European Union wanted uh, the UK to remain bound by its own uh, regulatory uh, rules on social affairs and on climate change and uh, environmental uh, issues. And they reached a quite reasonable uh, understanding on that. So that is to say the, the UK has, uh, cannot uh, um, go back on the rules that the UK used to apply until the end of last year. So it was a reasonable uh, compromise. And there was for the UK a very sensitive issue, issue which was the financial services. As you know, the UK was a service, and it still is a service economy, and London was the, the, the main financial hub of Europe. So uh, the UK wanted to keep on trading on financial uh, service with the EU without any constraints. And on the other side, the EU wanted to take advantage of the fact that the UK was about to leave uh, the European Union and services were part of the deal. So they created a number of constraints, legal constraints for the UK. And, um, well, at this, at this level that the UK could probably face more hurdles in its relationship uh, with the European Union in uh, the coming years. So there were a lot of concerns uh, as the kind of effective date of the British exit, the Brexit, you know, was approaching. There were a lot of concerns about um, you know, bottlenecks and supplies and, 
you know, there were major concerns about, you know, food, medicines, things that people in the UK relied on, but, you know, got from abroad. Uh, and, you know, that made news, uh, understandably. Uh, so I, I wonder if you could tell us, you know, how that has worked out. I mean, news cycles are, you know, brief in our day now. Uh, so I assume this is, you know, something that's not really happening anymore, but, you know, maybe it's just, uh, cycled off from our attention because it was a hot issue at first, but, uh, you know, resolved itself. What what has happened in that regard? Well, in general, there was the general fear that this could lead to shortage on supplies, even because there was uh, kind of uh, at the very end of the negotiation of last year, the the, the French government they, they closed the border. Uh, on the channel and there was some shortage so there was this general fear as well in, in these first six months we do not face fortunately those shortages uh, things are more or less going on on a regular basis uh, there is this general trend uh, for um, um on a fall of exports on both sides uh, to um, from the United Kingdom to Europe and from Europe to the United Kingdom there was a significant fall on exports something like 30% uh, but this is considered to be due to uh, the um, small and medium companies they have to adapt to the new rules and this brings more um, administrative procedures, licenses, and a number of certifications uh, through which they have to go through. So this initial reduction could be explained by those higher requirements when compared to what was the previous situation. And moreover, there is this pandemic, which also creates less consumption in both sides, so if there's less consumption, there are, of course, less imports from the other side. But things are turning quite well for the, for the time being, I would say. Well, that's certainly good to hear. Um, and, you know, there's one other problem that uh, we should surely talk about that has been a major kind of concern and stumbling block in this whole process, and that is the, the status of Northern Ireland, which finds itself on, you know, the Emerald Isle, uh, sort of between two, a rock and a hard place, if you look at it. In other words, it's part of the UK, but it, it, it abuts a U, an EU member state namely Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, and that has been a cause of a lot of, uh, you know, confusion and uh, difficulty about the status of Northern Ireland. Can you explain, you know, how that has been resolved and how it's working out? Well, the Northern Ireland is probably the, uh, the, the biggest challenge to the implementation of this trade and cooperation agreement. Very briefly, um, when the UK and the EU, they uh, reach uh, uh, a deal for the UK to exit, the so-called withdrawal agreement, there was this commitment by Boris Johnson that uh, for um, 
for the the so-called uh, Good Friday Agreement, which was the peace agreement in Northern Ireland that was taken in the 90s between the British government, the, the Irish government, and the um, uh, Northern Ireland representatives of both communities, um, in order for this Good Friday Agreement and peace in Northern Ireland to proceed, there should, no, there should be no border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. So there was this general commitment that um, the abolishment of uh, the frontier between Northern Ireland, which is still part of the UK, and the Irish Republic should not be restored. Hence, um, the European Union, they asked the Northern Ireland, which is a nation, part of the UK, uh, to be part of the so-called European Union common market. The common market is basically um, the economic life of the European Union, this area, where goods can move from one place to the other, person, service, everything without borders. So, uh, for the, so the rules to be applied in Northern Ireland in economic trade would be the rules of the European Union. So some kind of border should be made on the Irish Sea on trade between the UK and Northern Ireland. Uh, because as there is no border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic, the goods that move from Scotland or from the UK or Wales to um, the, the island of Ireland, they can either stay in Northern Ireland or to the Irish Republic. Well, this created the implementation of this protocol, which was part of the first agreement made by the UK and European Union in the year 2019, the implementation is now facing a very strong resistance by the so-called unionists. That is to say, that part of the Northern Ireland society that is loyal to the United Kingdom. The Northern Ireland is a divided country. I would say that some... 50-something of the population they want to stay part of the UK and almost half, the other half of the population they would favour um, to join um, the Irish Republic. So uh, the Unionists, which, which are the larger community but not so large as they would like to be, uh, they say that by staying in the, the so-called European Union common market, they are in practice uh, being uh, out of the UK in economic terms because they cannot benefit from the normal trade relations with the UK, which, which is their own country. So they feel that this protocol, this Northern Ireland protocol, is creating a, a negative discrimination of Northern Ireland when compared to the other nations of the UK, say Wales or Scotland or England. So uh, they are uh, raising a lot of concerns in the implementation of this protocol. On his side, Mr. Boris Johnson, who is very peculiar in the way that he deals with um, his previous commitments, is uh, 
saying that, well, this is the case for the EU to reconsider the whole extent of the protocol and to go back and to have a more, uh, um, well, a reasonable implementation of this protocol. The European Union, on its part, they say that the, this was signed both by the British government and the European Union, so this is the law, and the law uh, must be applied. Some kind of uh, dural ex, sad lex, the law can be hard, but you have to keep on uh, implementing the law. So the, this is, we are now living in the period of tensions. Uh, we had this G set meeting last uh, weekend, where there was uh, a meeting between uh, Mr. Macron, the French president, and Mr. Boris Johnson, the, um, um, the British Prime Minister, or the UK Prime Minister, where they even discussed the case of sausage being export, export from England to Northern Ireland, saying that uh, this would not happen if there was sausage exported from Toulouse to Paris. And Macron answering that, well, uh, Toulouse and Paris, they are part of the same country. So some reason, reasonability must be found in the implementation of this protocol if the UK wants uh, to keep having a good relationship with the European Union, but at the same time, the European Union must be also tolerant in the way that uh, they face the concerns of the Unionists in Northern Ireland. Very interesting. I mean, it's a reminder that the devil is always in the details of things like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but... Maybe one last question, um, you know, about how this is working out for sort of ordinary, everyday, you know, Brits. I mean, I know, and you probably know, somebody, an academic who, you know, is extremely unhappy about what's happened and feels himself cut off from his, you know, intellectual uh, partners in, in on the continent and that sort of thing. But... You know, I don't think it was the case really before Brexit that that many people really went back and forth. Uh, I, I don't know the numbers that well, but, uh, you know, I think the, this was not a huge kind of number of people who actually, you know, took advantage of this kind of mobility, at least on a, I mean, they might have gone on the channel to France for a weekend or something like that, but they didn't really move in large numbers. Um, so maybe you could talk about, you know, how has this actually affected, you know, ordinary Brits and are people happy? Are they unhappy with how it's worked out? Cause, you know, there are lots of comments that have been made about, you know, how the referendum took place and, and the circumstances and that, you know, had it been, had it taken place at a slightly different time, the outcome would have been different and all these questions of rerunning the, the, the uh, referendum and all that. So how do you think things, you know, have worked out from the point of view of ordinary Britons? Well, uh, from the point of ordinary Britons, the problem is that most of them, for instance, you have a very large British community living both in the South Spain or in South Portugal. 
The fact is that they were used to come to, uh, to Algarve, which is South Portugal, or to South Spain. And some of them, they, they bought some real estate in the area, but they are not really registered as British citizens living in Portugal or in Spain. So they do not have formally this ID that recognize um, the period of time they are living there. So suddenly they face in a situation where they do not benefit anymore from the so-called free movement of citizens because they are not part anymore from the European Union. So once they are not registered uh, for most of them, the current situation is uh, to be in the same way as the American or the U.S. citizens would be if they decided to move to South Spain or to South Portugal. So they cannot benefit for the most favorable rules that allows EU citizens to live everywhere they want. Apart from that, they are still very well received in the places where they decided to settle after uh, their working life. Uh, well, they may face some troubles in um, going to hospitals and uh, national health services, but basically these do not uh, change a lot. There will be some more uh, controls whenever they take a plane, either to go back to UK or to come to Portugal or to South Spain, but really they are not prevented from uh, keep on moving and living abroad whenever they want. It's just a question of facing more uh, paperwork and bureaucracy and sometimes together with bureaucracy to pay some more, some more, a couple of thousand more of euros in order uh, to get what they want. And there are also some problems with with pets. Uh, whenever you take pets from one place to another, you have to comply with the sanitary rules, veterinary uh, checks, and so on. Well, but this is uh, this is not because of pets that people are uh, get, giving up of living abroad. So I would say that at the end, well, people will accommodate to the new constraints that were, were created because of Brexit, because at the very beginning, the Brexit idea was presented to the British voters as a way uh, to reframe the amounts of immigrants coming to the UK. So migration was on the basis of uh, Brexit. Uh, the UK used to be the most open country of the European Union uh, to foreign workers. And um, this was then after the Eastern Enlargement. Well, the Eastern Enlargement those people coming from the former Soviet bloc, they wanted to move to places where they could find better jobs and uh, better paid jobs. So the UK opened the doors to those citizens. And this was a national reaction made by those that were left behind. 
at the time where there were a lot of challenges due to globalization and so on. So uh, those who are not well off, those who were left behind, they were more sensitive uh, to the Brexit appeal than those who used to take advantage of the rules of free movement that were allowed in the European Union. So um, there is a social division also in the reactions of culture and social divisions of people on, I, I, in their reaction. But you are not prevented to move and uh, to live wherever you want. Right. Fascinating and very informative. Thank you very much. I want to thank Antonio Gauces Suarez for his insights about the UK and Europe in the aftermath of Brexit. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Risto Voinov for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure to be in your show. Thank you very much. Terrific. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, John. My pleasure.